Hello and welcome to Woman Self-Made Podcast with me, Marina Bennett. My guest today is Libby Brody, an award-winning theatre and film producer turned wine entrepreneur. Having started her wine business just a couple of years ago, she's now a wine consultant, presenter, judge, host and a wine columnist for City AM, where she has the entire page. In this episode, we talk about her remarkable journey, about disrupting the wine industry, and we have a surprise for you at the end of the episode. Libby gives a mini masterclass on how to taste and drink champagne. Please welcome Libby Brody. Libby, do you consider yourself successful? That's a very interesting question. I think actually, um, I think there's something British in me where we don't really like to talk about our own successes or achievements in any big headed way. But I'm also wary of qualifying success in other people's interpretation of it. I think it's very key that you decide your own version of success um, and live kind of true to that. So do I consider myself successful? I think that I have been very fortunate and I work very hard and in general, everything I put my mind to has succeeded. So I would I would say, yes, to a certain degree I am. But if you're qualifying it by being incredibly wealthy or, you know, I, I guess um, never having to work that hard because you've achieved the pinnacle of where you are, then definitely not. Um, and life-work balance, I mean, I think that's quite key to overall life success. And I probably haven't nailed that either. Um, so I guess I'm I'm on a I'm on a journey. I'm, I'm on a journey. journey. So I have picked up on a yes, and <laughs> journey is is great. And you still have your full life mm-hmm. in front in front of you. You mentioned your version of success. So what is your version of success? Is it specifically to you, or you have a success standard to I other think, people? I think as I grow older, my idea of success leads further away from my work. I think when I, well, actually, maybe when I, I think I was a teenager, I think success depended on being popular with my friends mm-hmm. or maybe popular is the wrong word, but I was always very social um, and enjoyed that sort of engagement. Um, but I've always been fairly ambitious. I've always had drive. I wouldn't qualify myself as competitive. I, I tend to believe that everyone can do their own thing at their own pace. And if my friends or my colleagues are achieving, I'm generally pretty happy about that because I don't feel it, it touches me. Um, I think as I grow older, my version of success brings more of my lifestyle into it. So a successful life for me would include still friends, family, that human connection. Um, I do love external validation, (laughs) which which is why my work is so important to me and having someone go, good job, well done. I mean, that's something I've really come to acknowledge about myself. So having that work as well is very, very fundamental to my life. And also, you know, travel is very important. Um, Good food and drink, uh, a a nice place to live. You know, um, there are sort of different elements that makes up. And I think potentially although it's probably a less sexy word, um, contentment. 
Um, I think I've luckily never been a perfectionist. I know a lot of successful people are perfectionists, but I think that way misery lies. Um, and it's never been so. I sort of just throw myself at something, see if it sticks. I say yes to things a lot and then work out afterwards how to do it um, or like how to make it work for me. So um, yeah, maybe a bit of a tangent there, but I think that, um, yeah, success for me generally would encompass all different sides of my life. Who did you imagine yourself becoming as a 20-year-old? Did you wow. see yourself being a wine connoisseur and wine <laughs> industry disruptor? Absolutely not, in no way, shape or form. Um, so I was in theatre originally, love theatre. Both my parents were actors. My brother's now an actor, director, producer. Um, and so theatre is very much in the blood and the family and... I love it, always have done. Couldn't be an actress because I have horrible crippling stage fright, um, vomiting the wings sort of level. So, but was a producer for a long time. I, and in my 20s, I was trying to figure out my place in theatre. So I tried all sorts of things, you know, directing and administration and marketing and events um, and script reporting until I sort of found producing in my mid-20s. Um, and... That's what I thought I was going to do for the rest of my life. I was at the Old Vic Theatre, which was phenomenal, particularly everyone there was very supportive. Started my own company, uh, launched my first production, um, which had Dame Janet Sisman in it um, at the Fimbra Theatre. And then I think I was 26 and it got all five star reviews and then transferred to the West End with ATG, I think the largest theatre company at that time. Um, so to have like the first ever production on the on the West End with these five star reviews was absolutely mind blowing. I thought, right, that's it. I found my path for life. Uh, but life has a funny way of throwing curveballs. Um, and I think adaptability is a very important strength mm -hmm. for people to have flexibility. That's, again, something I think that I have I have caught on to more as I grow older. And so, yeah, I thought I'd be in theatre and I thought I'd be living in New York. That was always my plan, but sadly that didn't work out either. Um, but yeah, so now, now in wine has been quite a strange transition. Before we move to wine, yeah. uh, which and transition is fascinating because that's uh, so far apart, in my <laughs> view at least. Could you uh, just explain a little bit, how does one become a successful theatre producer? So you're in your 20s, <laughs> you started, you, you tried different things, and then you go to uh, five-star reviews. Uh, a few years a few years ago, uh, your shows were about to go on a tour of the world, yeah. in West End. How? What does it take on a personal level? Um, I think a lot of hard work, you know, um, I spend a lot of my time working. I'm not someone who easily relaxes or has downtime. Something again, I feel possibly needs to be qualified for a fully successful life, but I, I'm a very, I very much have that drive and ambition and I work very hard. But also I think one of the key things that I would say leads to success for me personally in my life has been networking or other people and those relationships you build. And I think that networking can have quite a negative connotation. People go, they're working the room like a shark, you know, that sort of sharky, networky idea. And actually, I think for me, it's the polar opposite of that because I genuinely love people. Like, I think they're fascinating. I really want to get to know them. I enjoy their company. I enjoy talking to people and listening to people. Um, and so from very early on, I was immediately that person 
who was going out saying, oh, that's so interesting. Can I take you for a coffee and learn more about that? Or, oh, I'd really value your advice on X, Y, Z. I've never had a problem asking for advice. I think that's really important and key. I've never had a fear of failure because I think you're just going to, you know, you do enough things. I think something's going to fail along the way. And we shouldn't be afraid of that unless you're sort of a brain surgeon. And then obviously that's a bit of a blow. But if you're talking about like, sorry, but if you're talking about like theatre or wine or something like that, then what's the worst that can happen? You, you say, can I take you for coffee? And they say, no, I'm too busy. Okay, well, that's fine. Move on. Or you're going to try something out and it doesn't quite work. Well, you've learned valuable lessons for next time. So just carry on. And I'm a big, I'm a big advocate of sort of just carrying on because what's the worst that can happen? And I think that generally I've reached out to a lot of people um, and because of that network that I have, I mean, when I was in my 20s, I started a spreadsheet of everyone I met at every opening night, at every coffee, at every meeting, every every sort of chance encounter. I wrote a spreadsheet of their names, what they did, where I'd met them. Um, actually, it's very organized to me at 20 something. Do you still do that? Uh, I don't actually. I should I should do that. That was actually very clever of me. And then I would go back and think, oh, I met that. But that may be able to advise on that, or help me on that. Or they'd be a good connection for this. And also in that, I'm I like connecting people. I think there's nothing. One of the negative things is gatekeeping. You know, I've got this, and I'm going to keep it to myself. And I don't think that's how industry survives. And I don't think that's how the economy survives. And I don't. Um, I personally think that actually connecting people to each other. You know, oh, you're interested in that. This person does that. That maybe I'll put you together and see, see if that works. And when it does, those people are like, "This is great," and then they'll remember you next time. And I think there is this idea of sharing and this sort of collegiate, cohesive atmosphere that, for me, has been very valuable. I don't believe you get ahead by just solely thinking about yourself, or at least that hasn't been my own journey personally. And I can only vouch for my own journey personally mm-hmm. in this. So yes, I think that that was one of the things that led to my quick success. But also, I mean, the play was amazing. The actors were amazing. The director was amazing. Um, and it was it was quite ambitious for what it was. And the size of the theatre, the film was only 50 seats. So it sold out entirely because we had a wonderful cast. And um, and then obviously transferred to the West End, which was, which was phenomenal. But um, I remember going to... Um, Adam Kenwright, who had AKA at that, at that time, he was head of AKA, which was a marketing company in the West End. And I being a naive, probably naivety helps too, actually. I being a naive um, early 20s, mid 20s person thinking, yeah, why not? Now I probably go, well, I should probably find out his PA's number and go through those. I didn't. Mm-hmm. I just emailed him straight away and said, hi, I've got this show. I'm going to take it to the West End. Can we meet up and can you can you back it or something like that? I mean, and he actually took a meeting with me, which now looking back on it was a bit mad. And um, he got all the... It was so curious. I mean, who are you? That's never happened. You little upstart. Um, Yeah. And so we had this great meeting and he said, look, to be honest, when you were coming, I was going to tell you, no, there's no way I'm going to do this. But actually, we're going to do the marketing for you for free and I'm going to put some money in to back this show and invest in it. Um which was just phenomenal. And I think without that sort of ballsy, gutsy behavior, you know, you just got to have a bit of faith in yourself. Um, and again, could have gone to that meeting and you could have said no, all right, on with the next. Um, but yeah, that's kind of... So what happened next? What, what uh, was this did, terrible? Did well because it was then, going so, oh, so well. It was, it was. So I worked there, I worked in there, I got sort of headhunted for a big production company or bigger sort of more commercial production company was there for five years then 
left there because I wanted to sort of do my own thing for a while. I went to New York, put a play back to London, and started my own company. That grew for, oh, I mean, it grew nicely for about three years. And then I had um, one show that had just flown to New Zealand to do an international tour, another show that I'd been working on for five years. <gasps> Um, putting together that was about to start a national tour and then another show that was opening uh, in the West End and it was going to have my name above the title you know Libby Brody Presents and wow. it was going to be really cool and I had just become a mum so I was very wary that I'd taken a step back well sort of there is no such thing as maternity leave when you're a freelancer but um, I had taken a bit of a step back but I'd been doing all this in the background and I couldn't wait to sort of announce my amazing three massive productions uh, that were all going to go out in March 2020. And of course, March 2020 was when lockdown hit and everything just sort of folded overnight, of um, and which was fairly devastating. Was it, was it hard for you? Yes, it was very hard for me. I suddenly had all of my work and plans and everything I channeled my energies into for years had folded with no real sign of when it was coming back. And... Um, I was very fortunate. I got two grants to carry on my work. One for me is a one for a particular show, and one as a producer. And I was doing bits and bobs, but it's incredibly hard over Zoom. You know, I worked with some mm -hmm. musicians. I held I held Zoom um, showings of of shows and musicals. I, I we actually did manage to um, create a track that then Elaine Page played on her show in lockdown, which was amazing to do over you know Zoom essentially. Um, But it was it was challenging and it wasn't as busy as I like to be, um, even with a one-year-old locked in the house. Um, and so I started, I took to drink. Essentially, I took to drink in a professional capacity eventually. Um, but I started, I was curious about wine from my early 20s because, I mean, I've always quite enjoyed to drink. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pleasure person, so I really am Epicurean, I guess. So I've always enjoyed sort of flavour um, food, drink, that sort of thing. Um, and then a boyfriend at university took me to a fancy wine tasting. And I remember taking a sip of Bicard Salmon, uh, Rosé Champagne and thinking, oh my word, this is so much better than a Smirnoff Ice. And then I started getting into books. In fact, you can, you can see them there, but, um, yeah, I started getting into books and reading more around wine and asking sommeliers at restaurants questions about wine, because I think asking questions is the way forward. And, But it wasn't until lockdown, so, you know, I mean, 15 years later or whenever it was, that I basically started doing the WSET course, which um, is the Wine and Spirit Education Trust. And they do level one and level two. I think I did those as sort of a hobby, but by level two, I was bitten by the bug. Level three is a sudden jump up. When I turned up, it was that brief period in lockdown where we actually opened up and you could go to things. I turned up to this course <laughs> and I was the only one in my class not in wine. Um, and everyone had done all the reading before the class and the class was meant to be sort of refresher and I hadn't. So I thought they were going to teach us. Uh, so it was a massive cramming catch up, but I'm okay. because I, I kind of thrive on stress and deadlines. So I was a massive, the, the, the loft up here where I live looked, looked like something from a beautiful mind. You know, I had <laughs> maps everywhere and lists of grapes all over the floor and, you know, what soil is here and what wind is there. And, and uh, yeah, it was crazy. And we had a, a theory exam and a blind tasting exam, which everyone gets really worried about. And I passed those both with distinction, which was just an incredible feeling for me, given that I'd really been cramming. And 
I was talking to theatre was still coming in and out. You know, people I knew, mm-hmm. other producers were putting on shows, being told that we were all back to normal and then closing them after two performances. And that's such a loss of money. And I'm a small independent producer. I don't have, you know, I don't have the, the heaving coffers of that course, some of the big yeah. people do. So I wasn't going to risk that at that point. And I was advising some friends uh, really on their wines for their wedding, wines for events, until um, a, a friend or colleague or a person at uh, Corny and Barrow, uh, who are a wine distri- um, wine sales distribution company, um, a friend of mine at Corny and Barrow basically said, you're a wine consultant. And I said, what's a wine consultant? And he said, it's probably who gets paid to tell people what to drink. And that sounds amazing. So I went to the HMRC and I got my license to sell and I launched mm-hmm. uh, Bacchus and Brody uh, in January 2021. So very, very recent. Um, and I had this idea that I was going to be a backstage person because a producer is a backstage person. I would never be in front of a camera and as mm-hmm. a producer you're you're putting you're doing the excel spreadsheets and the contracts and you're employing people and you're putting it together but you're not the actor or the director so i had this idea that i was going to be distributing wines uh to events and things like that because i have events experience um <laughs> which has obviously gone slightly you know you've got to roll got to roll with life i think when things change um and so i the the man who built my website said you need to start a blog on this website because of spiders or something to do with Google. I'm not very technical, so I was like, okay, fine. And I've never written anything before, mm-hmm. and I'd never been on camera before. And I'd start at this point in lockdown when I was studying the wines, a little uh, Instagram account called Boozy and the Beast with my friend who's an ex-pro rugby player and loves wine. And it was sort of a comedy sketches, five minutes long. I did I did some binge watching <laughs> over, over the weekend. <laughs> that, that was really interesting. And you, oh, you, make it, you make it interesting, you make it easy compared to many of the others wine specialists who are very serious. Yeah, that's the thing. I think wine can really put people off because it's seen as sort of, up itself really a bit bit fusty bit old-fashioned and it has been I mean I I, mm-hmm. I think it personally has been and that was not the aim of this but I didn't really know what I was starting because we hadn't come out of lockdown I hadn't gone into the wine industry proper and so I started that and then that was picked up by a couple of people I was invited on a Jay Marler's podcast who mm-hmm. plays for England rugby to teach him about wine and then I got sort of more followers on Instagram and I started posting I started just by posting bottles but then I started posting more of me and my face and I, I did have um moments of imposter syndrome which I think everyone does mm-hmm. actually I believe everyone has imposter syndrome and there we can just we can all just discount it because everyone has it so just ignore it and but I was thinking I can't put my face on this account it was originally anonymous because I'm in theatre I'm not in wine and people think what are you doing but I, I met this lovely community online and they encouraged me to put more of myself out there um these wonderful women in wine essentially were on Instagram um, and they were, we doing, we were doing Zoom tastings together and stuff in lockdown. It was brilliant. It was really a really warm and welcoming entrance into wine. I actually don't think many people get and I don't think I would have got had it not been lockdown and doing it basically by myself and online. Because when I, within within four months of launching Bacchus and Brody, I was the wine columnist for City AM Um which has a huge, you know, a very nice readership in London. And about six months after that, they'd expanded it to a whole page. So I have a page now in the paper um, called Wine Down Wednesday, Wine Without the Snobbery, 
a feature and recommendations mm-hmm. and restaurant reviews and things like that. And then I was also asked to write for other people. I was asked to interview winemakers in different countries, which would never have happened without lockdown because suddenly it all became digital. So I could interview winemakers in South Africa. And so actually that that sort of pivoting in lockdown really worked for me in a way. It was actually interesting that when I when lockdown ended and suddenly as the DM's wine columnist, I was being invited to press events, I realised I was often the only woman. Mm-hmm. Um, quite a few occasions, I mean, many occasions, enough for me to really notice it, that I I go to these lunches or I go to these events and I'd be the only woman around the table. Less so now, actually, but certainly in those first few early days, uh, I say early days, about a year ago, um, that was something that really stood out to me. And I actually started mentioning it, so drawing it to people's attention and going, oh, am I the only woman again? And I remember one chap around this table said, no, there's a woman. And I said, yes, that's the waitress. I wasn't saying I needed a chaperone because, <laughs> oh my goodness, I'm in a room with all these men. <laughs> Where's another female? I was saying, where are the women in wine? Because my experience in lockdown had been that there'd been so many women interested in wine. Um, so that was, that was very strange for me. The name of your column wine without snobbery uh does it suggest that generally the wine industry is quite snobbish oh without insulting any colleagues here um i i think that wine has been i think there's been a failure in wine communication and the reason i think this is because i'm so new to it um that i don't understand who my friends my my peers They're upwardly mobile. They care about what they put in their bodies. You know, they they care about their vegetables being organic, their eggs being free range, how their steak is cooked. They care about these things. They think about things. They have the income for these things. And then they say, red or white. And I was thinking, well, that must be a failure of communication. Because Mm -hmm. how can all my friends who are actually actively interested in what they're putting in their bodies, how can they not know what different grapes do or what different styles of wine do to their food um what complements and what doesn't complement these are people who actually do care about it and then that means that people who don't even have an inkling you know whose family didn't drink wine or you know that they're so far removed from that knowledge and if they were going i mean you you, i think visibility here is key you can't people say you can't be what you can't see i'm not sure if i entirely agree with that but i do think it's a massive part of it so if you go to a tasting room and it's a bunch of middle-aged white men in various shades of blue suit. Mm-hmm. And I have plenty of friends who are middle-aged white men and, you know, I'm related to a few. Um, I have got nothing against them per se, but I do think that if that's the room you're going into, a lot of people who potentially may not be as confident as I am would be put off um, by that situation. And and it is a true thing that I'm asked to do a lot of women-only wine tastings because it's just a fact that when I do group ones, men tend to dominate the conversation. So did it make it difficult for you initially, at least? I didn't think so because I have blinkers on. Most of the, I, I generally charge into every room assuming that everyone's going to like me. This is going to be really fun. We're really going to enjoy it. Let's have a brilliant time. That's my general attitude. So when I have met hostility, I have been definitely confused by that. And I have, I would say, met, you know, with a fair degree of hostility, both in person and online but i think that it's quite important to realize that industries change it's not just wine and i think that anyone that's been working 
in an industry for a very long time doing certain things one way. And then if someone comes in and goes, we should change it, shouldn't be done that way. They have every very human right to their feeling of going, excuse me, A, who are you? B, um, there's nothing wrong. I am not doing anything wrong by how I've done my work. Because that feels like a criticism. And I get that. And I'm not meaning to criticize that. But the world is changing. And how people Mm -hmm. want to drink and communicate and learn is changing. People that I know don't want to hear someone pontificating and telling them, this is the only vintage you should drink. And this is the best wine. And this wine is terrible. You know, the, the... the younger generation of wine drinkers want to hear a story about wine. They want to know about the winemaker, how the mm-hmm. wine is made, maybe a bit of information around that. And then they can make their own mind up. And the whole wine without snobbery is that it's your palate. You drink whatever you like. Have the information and the tools. I can tell you this wine will suit this food better. Or I can tell you if you're spending that little on a bottle of wine, work backwards. How much is that wine? Take away the stamp duty, the bottle price. Also think about you know, I have friends who go, oh, I'm not going to spend that on wine, but they're real advocates for fair trade. And I said, okay, but if you're spending a fiver on a bottle of wine, what are those workers being paid? Mm-hmm. Let's go backwards. You know, how much are these workers in the field getting? Now, I'm not saying that expensive wine means they're getting paid more at all, but I'm saying that it's interesting that people haven't even thought about it. They don't associate wine as a farmed product. There are laborers out there making it. There are winemakers taking years over it. I mean, every bottle of wine is years. A vine takes from planting the vine, it takes four years to grow some grapes you can make wine from. Then you've got, you know, you've got the harvest, you've got all the experiments the winemaker's making essentially to make this wine happen. Then you've got bottle aging. I mean, you've got, so it's, it's years of work to make any, any bottle of wine that you are picking up. It's due respect and knowledge. And I think there has been a failure in traditional wine communication that there isn't that general understanding in the world. People are removed from what they're drinking. Uh, you uh, sounds like you did uh, face, although you speak so positively about it, your share of uh, possibly discrimination, some <laughs> online um, unfairness, hate, bullying. Um, lots of people uh, don't go into social media. They don't want mm. to um, be public because they have this fear mm. uh, of of dealing with uh, with this uh, with mm. this bullying, discrimination, and hate. How? What advice would you do? How do you deal with it? Um, well, in some ways, I've got a foot in either camp, right? Because I've um, I, I, I'm qualified, you know, uh, not not diploma, but level three qualified, which I have some knowledge. And I think it's very important in this to say, I don't believe there are any wine experts because wine is such an evolving, changing, climate change alone is changing all the bloody regions where everything's happening. So, you know, everything is is changing and evolving. So you can't be an expert on everything in wine. But I'm very keen to say, oh, I, I didn't know that. Oh, tell me more about this. And I think that's an important part of reaching the general consumer because you're taking them on a journey with you. That's that's key. I think that I am quite lucky in that I have um, a newspaper page and I have done some presenting and you know podcasts and TV and stuff. So I have a sort of level of of being press in a way. But I also have my foot very firmly in the social media Instagram world of wine, wine Instagram hashtag wine Instagram, and that's really interesting because. Um, there is a definite sexualization of women that does not happen to men. And I find that fascinating, actually, <laughs> really fascinating. I, uh, you have plenty of men on Instagram who might be topless, who might be, might be just some speedos oiled up by the pool. I'm all with tongue in cheek, so to speak. Um, uh, you might have 
them doing poses where they're licking the top of a bottle. But for some reason, a guy does it, it's funny or it's not even noticed. But if a woman licks the top of a bottle... It's inappropriate. It's totally inappropriate or it's seen as that. I think there's so many interesting parts to this. I know some men and some women who talk about, oh, these influencers, and they are very much referring to the women, the younger women, not the men. And it's interesting because I've, I've you know, people, some of these people, they themselves are on Instagram every day. You know, I see them there, but they don't count themselves as oh, an influencer. And um, they also, there's also lots of men on Instagram, not lots, there are fewer chaps who are just doing Instagram than there are women that I found. But those chaps who are just doing Instagram, be them like lives or photos or anything, they don't get the same level of ridicule and they're not grouped into that ugh, influencer thing that I have witnessed personally. And I think there is a sexualization I've, I've definitely been referred to sexually. Um, I had uh, one, I was interviewed by the drinks business and I did this great interview and um, the headline of it was uh, Lycra, Lycra cat-suited podium dancer turned... Um, wine consultant and I had never referenced that I've read that article yeah, I was it, wondering where did that come where did from the, where did that yeah exa that's exactly what I was wondering and it's it's true that in my university days I'd done some promo work for Corona but that was 20 years ago and had no relevance to my work now or even my you know 10-15 year career in theatre as an award-winning international producer um but I mean it probably meant that more people clicked on my interview uh, but that was very interesting. It had, uh, the, the journalist who'd written it actually heard it, uh, heard the story from someone else. Now, he had said, hey, I just heard the story. Is that true? And I had said yes, but I had no idea that it would go out there. Now, actually, I'm not embarrassed that I did promo work at all. Like, you know, I know lots of people did, but I, I don't think any male sommeliers have been interviewed and then said, hey, we have a butler in the buff. Let's put that up there. Um, so I think women in, are more sexualized automatically in certain ways both by their social media by the way they're referred to um and wine itself has been quite a sexual product of course it is not only has it traditionally lots of people said it's a masculine wine or a feminine wine and things you're not really allowed to say anymore but also it's a social lubricant so you know you're having a mm -hmm. glass or two and barriers come down and and you know that's a great thing about wine in general but it can you know it can facilitate certain method ways of being that potentially wouldn't wouldn't happen in an office and in a bank shall we say. Um, so I think it is quite interesting. As a woman on Instagram, I'd say, F the haters. I'm not sure if I could swear on this, so I won't. But um, I would say that it is fascinating to me that the female form has been used for centuries to sell products. Um, and that was somehow okay, as long as it was a man directing it or the money was going to a man's pocket. Maybe men feel better, or maybe men feel better at thinking, oh, she looks really sexy on that car bonnet, but she probably didn't really want to do it. Maybe that's better. I think that's kind of gross if that's making it better. But for some reason, the idea that a woman is monetizing her own figure, exactly how she wants to do it and being paid for it is outrageous. And I would urge the people who think it's outrageous to to, to ask themselves why they're uncomfortable with that. Is it better for that female figure to be out there in advertising when it's going to a man? Or is it better for that female figure to be out there in advertising when she was the only good, it was the only job she could get and she didn't know what else, and she didn't really want to do it? Why is a woman owning her own body and making her own money from it in a way that literally doesn't affect you? Social media, just unfollow her. You don't have to see it. It's, <laughs> it's got no effect on your life. 
Um, I just don't understand why people get so upset about that. So I think, yeah, it is a very interesting, there is still a lot of male female divide that I, and I don't actually think many men are deliberately hostile. I think it's just something I haven't noticed because the wine industry has been so typically male, but it is changing rapidly. I am now part of the Wine Collective, which I founded with three other fantastic women in wine who've been doing it for longer than me, and I'm honoured to be working with them. And they have different experiences from diploma to, you know, actually working harvest, so actually getting right in there with the grapes. And uh, it was really fascinating because when we launched the Wine Collective in April, I think, this year, we have been inundated with clients, inundated, because apparently this is really novel, which is terrifying, actually, if you think about that. Um, it's so novel to see four women enjoying wine, who know about wine, who aren't competitive. And that's sort of the themes we've been getting back from clients. That you're, not compa- you're not competing with each other. Well, yes, sometimes we'll probably go for the same job, but if we don't get it and the other one does, we're very happy for them. It's not a big deal. And you'll get this sort of idea of women knowing about wine and also being friendly about wine and making it approachable and fun. And that's why we've got such a client base. We don't just appeal to women, we appeal to a whole whole spectrum of different people but it's so the idea that this has not been seen before and why has that not been seen before because whenever I've enjoyed wine it's generally been with my female friends who know a bit about wine so that's been really interesting and a a, you know really nice string to our bow fascinating Uh, so first thank you for sharing your views very very refreshing very very modern I love the attitude (laughs) and uh, interesting to see how the industry which is changing now and you being the catalyst of this change where will it take us in a couple of years time in a few years time I'm hoping more uh, diversity with you know ethnicity disability uh, socioeconomic backgrounds we've got a a lot to everyone can enjoy wine wine is just a great drink let's just get everyone to enjoy wine and know what they're drinking i would drink for that Woohoo! shall we <laughs> and now we're going to have a treat libby is going to do a micro masterclass <laughs> on how to drink champagne um, quickly. No, I'm joking. I'm just going to open this first. Now, this is, you obviously, you hold the cage over the cork and then you twist the bottle and you try not to let it explode everywhere. But, woo, great sound. But if it does explode everywhere, you just have to own it and laugh. I'm a big believer in things always go wrong and you just have to go with it. So I'm just going to pour this. Now you'll notice, none of you will because you can't see this, but um, I'm pouring it into tulip-shaped glasses. Now, this is very interesting because fashions for glasses change. Coupes were originally the sort of champagne glass of choice, Hollywood mm-hmm. glamour, but then champagne was slightly different. It was generally sweeter, slightly thicker. It was a different type of drink. Then we went into flutes, which are great for keeping those bubbles in, yep. keeps that effervescence. Yeah. But actually, the style is now changing to this tulip-shaped glass. Or if you don't have a tulip-shaped glass, then a white wine glass, to be honest, because many champagnes, particularly if they're older champagnes or you know vintage champagnes, the flutes don't really allow those aromas to come out properly. They contain mm-hmm. it too much. So this sort of open bowl of a tulip shape, narrowing more at the nose to sort of hone those aromas, that's what we should be drinking good champagnes from. So this is more like a wine glass shape. Yeah, like a, yes. yeah it's a tulip it's called, but it's the wine glass shape. Now what we're drinking here is a Blanc de Noir. Um, so champagne is typically made of three grapes. Two of them are red and one of them is white. So cham- uh, champagne is Chardonnay, Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier. And it can be different percentage blends of those three. But if it's just made from Chardonnay, then it's a Blanc de Blanc. 
and if it's made from just Pinot Noir or just Pinot Meunier or a blend of those two red grapes, then it's a Blanc de Noir and you'll typically get, I haven't actually smelled this yet probably, but you'll typically get more sort of, you'll still get an apple note generally, but you'll get like a red apple, sort of more crunchy red apples in a Blanc de Noir and it's a slightly rounder, fuller style of champagne, which I adore. Lots of people don't understand uh, champagne or what would you pair it with how would you serve it we are mm. uh, we are approaching a festive season i think it's a it's a very timely discussion it really is so champagne is obviously a wonderfully classic aperitif i think you can enjoy it at all times champagne is a wonderful drink because you can drink it at all times of day it's a you can have you can have a champagne breakfast should you wish you know, celebrations and commiserations i mean champagne is a wonderful drink to fit all all bills but I would say that although you can have the fresh styles, particularly as aperitif, I might go for like a Blanc de Blanc um, or something like that, or a drier style for an aperitif. Because of the acidity of champagne and the bubbles, there are certain foods that it goes particularly well with. So acidity, such as if you've got oysters with tons of lemon juice, mm-hmm. that goes really nicely with champagne because the acidity of it balances. But likewise, the acidity and the bubbles of champagne also cut through creamy things. For example, if you've got a cheese board, and one of my favourite pairings is like um, like a camembert or a brie, that creamy cheese with the blue. With champagne. With champagne, because this the bubbles cut through. You've got that sort of rich viscousness of the cheese, and the bubbles cut through that. So that's a really, for me, a lovely pairing. Another couple of favourite classic pairings for me, fish and chips and champagne. If you've never done fish and chips and champagne... I've never heard. I wouldn't have thought. Just do it. Because the fish and champagne, you can imagine, right, with those sort of light bubbles. But then you get that fatty batter, that sort of oily texture. is just wonderful because the crispness of the champagne, and again, those bubbles, that just slices through it beautifully. Wonderful pairing. A bit also like fried chicken and champagne, another one of mine. I'm quite... A, I'm sort of... I, I like a really lovely bottle of wine and some pretty filthy food, personally. Yeah, so um, those are my sorts of pairings. But I think it's quite important if you want to test the acidity of your wine very quickly. You take a sip, swallow it, close your mouth and tilt your head forward. And however much you're drooling into the front of your mouth is, the more you drool, the more acidic that wine is. Because sometimes you can't tell because you're so the fruit flavours will balance Would you do it. that with champagne as well? Yes, I, I would do it with wines to test it out. And if you've got acidity, then uh, you know that it will go with wonderful things that are acidic, lemon juice and oysters, to fatty things like pork belly or a creamy cheese. And acidity is quite good for knowing that and pairing. When teaching about wine, you talk about 4S formula, which is see, swirl, sniff and sip. Does that apply to champagne? Well, three of them do. People don't like to, some people don't like to swirl the champagne because when you're swirling it, you're getting the oxygen in there and you're getting rid of the bubbles. So although you might be getting the aromas out more, which is what you're trying to do to sniff it in a wine, you might be losing some of the bubbles. So some people don't swirl champagne or sparkling wine in general, and they will just sniff it and uh, sip it. And obviously see it, but that's the least fun part really, isn't it? And would you serve some champagne for Christmas lunch? Absolutely. I mean, I would, I would absolutely have champagne at Christmas because it's just a phenomenal drink isn't it it's a wonderful beverage and it it is kind of a beverage that goes with everything however i will make a massive shout out as well to the english sparkling wine which unfortunately thanks to climate change um we've got a warmer warmer climate we've got amazing soils champagne are buying lots of land in the uk now you know to actually bring their winemaking over here because of the way things are going so and um the langham's 
think it was Langens, I want to say it's Langens, uh, Blanc de Blanc 2018 actually beat Champagne in the blind tasting for best sparkling wine a couple of years ago. So our English so sparklings are getting really, really fantastic. So definitely keep an eye out for those. Thank you. And to wrap up, uh, a few quick questions. Okay. Uh, li literally, no. Okay. So question, answer. Okay. Um, do you still drink wine for pleasure or has it become work? Yes, pleasure, absolutely. Pleasure and work, best okay. way. What is your favorite unimportant thing to do? Unimportant thing to do? Watch Poirot. That was <laughs> just off the top of my head. That is how I de-stress. If you had a book written about you, what would you like a title to be? Oh, that's not a quick fire thing. Um, just bloody do it. Love it, love it. What is your favorite compliment that you have ever received? That I was funny. You definitely are. <laughs> and what is your next challenge? Uh, trying to get a bit more balance into my life. Uh, I think relaxation will always be challenging for me. Can women have it all? That's, uh, that's also not, not a quick question, but what's your take on that? It depends what your all looks like. Um, I think it's potentially still harder for us, but I think you can have quite a lot of it. Um, it was it was a pleasure to have this brief brief chat. Thank you for all the insights, for the wisdom, for the inspiration, and for the mini masterclass and the tips oh. for the Christmas dinner. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank, Thank you for the you. champagne. Thank you.